0: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. This year's Midwest Literary Walk is bringing internationally acclaimed writers to Michigan to share their work and share their stories. In a little bit, we're going to talk with poet Luis Rodriguez, whose frank depiction of gang life in America has garnered praise, but also landed his work on the nation's 100 most censored titles by the American Library Association. We'll talk to him about that work and that honor, as well as some of the criticism he has received. But first, we want to welcome New York Times best-selling author Min Jin Lee, whose work is getting lots of attention and critical acclaim for its masterful storytelling and insights into the lives of Korean immigrants. Min Jin Lee, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? I'm very good. It's very exciting to talk with you in, in advance of uh, your visit here in Michigan this weekend. I'm excited
1: to be in Michigan.
0: Yeah, no, that's going to be very cool. So talk about your book, Pachinko. Why did you want to explore the lives of Koreans living in Japan?
1: Because I'm crazy. I mean, (laughs) this book took me forever to write. I got the idea for when I was in college and I was 19, and I just turned 50 in November. So I've been working on this book off and on for almost three decades, and I felt really compelled to understand what was going on with Koreans in Japan because it was so different from what my experience was as a Korean in America. Mm -hmm. So I'm an immigrant, too. I came to the United States when I was seven years old, and my experience growing up in Queens, New York, was in many ways incredibly positive because I felt really welcomed here. And I was really supported in a kind of working-class, blue-collar community by public school teachers. And I became a lawyer, and then I quit being a lawyer to write fiction. Whereas the lives of Koreans in Japan, even today in 2019, can be very difficult for social reasons as well as legal reasons, because they are treated as second-class citizens, even today, even after four generations.
0: So, so I am always curious about uh, this kind of work. Uh, and as you say, you've been working on this for a long time, three decades, uh, the, the story that you're telling is, is a very character-driven story, right? Uh, it's, yeah, it's oh, about, absolutely. It's
1: a family story. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fiction, uh, but it's, mm-hmm. of course, reflecting a very real dynamic. Uh, talk about the sort of tension there of uh, writing something that is uh, a story, a narrative that you are making up, but grounding it so firmly in reality.
1: I didn't know how to write a novel like this when I first started, so I kind of approached it like a good history student, and I did a lot of research, and I thought I really knew the facts, but what I ended up having done is digesting a lot of points of view from really smart academics who had spent their lives understanding this community, and then the novel that I wrote as a result of that research was really boring and not interesting, And then so I gave up on it because I knew that no one's going to publish it because it was like really dull (laughs) because it wasn't fiction and it wasn't really a good history book. So it's kind of like neither fish nor fowl. And then I wrote my first novel, Free Food for Millionaires, which became published. And then I moved to Japan in 2007. And I thought, you know, I'm here. Why don't I try to understand what happened? Because I don't know. I just couldn't let this idea go of the Koreans in Japan and why they were so different from the Koreans in America. So... I started to interview all these Korean Japanese people and I learned that they weren't in any way perceiving themselves to be some sort of tragic victims. Like they kind of didn't understand why I was so interested and they didn't understand why I was so (laughs) upset about the way they were treated. And that was kind of interesting. I was like, Oh, I was wrong again. So I started to write the book as a much more character driven and much more family centered story And then it made sense to me that they were quite powerful and resilient. So you can put people down as much as you want to, no matter where you are in the world. And what really amazes me is that the instinct to survive is so strong and the instinct to fight is so strong, hmm. and that's what I ended up connecting with. And then the story became very, very different. Yeah.
0: So, so this story has been extremely well received. This book, of course, is being quite celebrated. Uh, and Apple has ordered an eight-episode series based on this book for its streaming service. Uh, we've heard that they hope this could be their *Handmaid's Tale*. Uh, or The Crown. I, I wonder how you react to that kind of reaction to your work.
1: It's completely bizarre. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean I Not what you expected, yeah. huh? <laughs> no, no, because I just imagine, I wrote this thing. I thought that it wouldn't get published. I thought that maybe an academic press might take it for free. That's really where I was because I had done so much academic research on it, I figured, well, why would regular people want to read this? And then after I wrote the family story I thought, okay, maybe it might get published and but I wrote about a micro community. I mean, six hundred thousand people are living today are Korean Japanese. I figured like who would care? <laughs> Except for me, because I had just basically thrown my life away. And then when the Apple thing came, I was so surprised because my first book, which people had shown interest to interest with was about the Koreans in America. And I thought, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense because it's an immigrant story about America. Hmm. But it's happened, and, I, you know, really smart people are attached to this project, and they did order the series, and they are envisioning it as a four-season show. Wow. So, I know. I mean, nobody is more surprised <laughs> than me. And No, actually... My
0: husband's
1: more surprised <laughs> because he had to watch me play around and try to understand how to write this
0: book. So, so I think one of the things that resonates or, or, or will resonate with with people is the currency of this story, right? Uh, the, the, idea of, uh, who struggle, uh, the idea of immigrants who struggle, the idea of immigrants who Uh, Exist in a society that doesn't accept them. Uh, The idea of immigrants who persevere in those circumstances uh, to try to become more a part of the society that they've immigrated to, uh, those are all themes that we don't have to look to Japan to find. Uh, we can find them right here in America. And I think one of the the, the the really interesting things about this book is that it shows, first of all, the kind of universality of that story, that it's not unique to America at this time, that uh, there are other places on the globe where immigrants face the same kind of things. Uh, but it's also this this sort of wonderful Uh, personally-driven narrative about that that I think uh, a lot of people can relate to.
1: Thank you, Stephen. That's incredibly generous of you. For me, this story has been seen as very topical around the world right now because... And it's a really interesting thing because I really didn't have that kind of mastermind intention. And uh, certainly I could not have predicted that around the world leaders are using xenophobia and scapegoating refugees in order to rise in power. And it's not just here. It's really all around the world because I think if I had to be some sort of futurist or some sort of political commentator, my assumption is that technology has really disrupted the global economy. Hmm and it has displaced a great number of people. And rather than understanding and tackling the role of education and how we could re-educate and repurpose citizens to be productive, meaningful members of society, rather we are focusing on powerless people that we could target whose votes don't count. And that's been happening not just here, but everywhere, because we can always use fear to make people act unjustly, Hmm. and that is what's happening right now. And one of the things that's really interesting is that because I grew up in America and I am an American citizen by naturalization, I know that most Americans truly are very decent, very generous people, and usually that can occur when people have close, intimate, interpersonal relationships within their society. So as long as we have racially segregated communities and schools, we do not know people as friends, mm. as lovers. And because we don't have that happening often enough in certain parts of the country, we can continue to despise people we don't even know.
0: Wow. Uh, my guest is Minjin Lee. She is author of the novels Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko, and she is one of the featured authors at this year's Midwest Literary Walk, and she will appear at 1 p.m. on Saturday at the Main Street Church in Chelsea. We're talking about... Her work and how it resonates with uh, people here, uh, not just in Michigan but uh, all over the country, right now. If you want to call and join the conversation, uh, let us know. Does your family have an immigration story? Uh, Pachinko, uh, Min Jin Lee's book is about Korean immigrants in Japan and the struggles that they have. Uh, being welcomed as part of that society. Uh, does your story does your story reflect that kind of arc uh, or narrative? Uh, do you have a story of resilience related to immigration? And what does human resilience mean to you, especially here? In Detroit. Think about all of the things that uh, challenge us here and that we have to persevere through. Uh, again, as always, the number on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you in uh, before we get to the phones. Uh, I want to ask you about free food for millionaires, which uh, which is a really different novel, <laughs> um, and and tells uh, a story that I suspect is much closer to your own, perhaps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to write about Queens. I wanted to write about the Koreans in Queens in the Northeast, and. I am writing a trilogy about the diaspora. So the first book is Free Food for Millionaires, and they're not related by characters, but they're related by the theme of what it means to immigrate, as well as to be rejected from the nation of your birth. Hmm. Because diaspora is really complicated in that way, right? Because you can choose to leave, but then sometimes they just throw you out, or they kick you out in an unfair situation. So the first book is Free Food for Millionaires, Koreans in America, and this is really set in the... 80s and 90s, and then you have Pachinko, which is about the Koreans in Japan, and my third book will be about the role of education for Koreans all over the world Mm. as a result of diaspora. But Free Food for Millionaires is much closer to my personal life because I did grow up in Elmhurst, Queens, and I knew so many Koreans who I felt were unrepresented, and their stories were really interesting to me, and because it's interesting to me, I thought maybe it might be interesting to other people, Mm. and it has... Uh, had a kind of resurgence recently. It's a finalist for this thing called One Book One New York, which is a New York City wide read. And I was really happy to see that because I do think that Koreans are making inroads all over the country in different ways. And I think that their lives are very, very American.
0: And and the, the story in uh, Free Food for Millionaires uh, is about that sort of striving. I feel like that is so yeah. common among yeah. not just immigrants in America, but but you know those of us who are who are born here. Uh, this idea of trying to keep up, trying to stay in the social circle that we think we belong to, uh, and or the financial circle that uh, that we belong to.
1: Well, I wanted to understand money hmm. because I, when I was growing up, I didn't have any money. And New York City is a place that really runs on money and power and status. And there are all these rules about money and status and power in New York, which are very kind of old school in the sense sense where, like, if you go to Los Angeles, it might be about celebrity and fame, and that's a different kind of currency. But in New York City, it's really just about money. (laughs) And then (laughs) When you have all this, in in a way, like, Washington, D.C. is about political power. So every city has something, right? And... New York City is not necessarily about a city of makers, but it's really about trying to understand all this exchange and transaction. And as an outsider, for me, I wanted to write about a character who's first generation at a very fancy college, and I chose Princeton. I didn't go to Princeton, but I chose Princeton because of the Ivy League schools, it is among the most class aware. Sure. And so I did all this research at Princeton, and I interviewed all these people who were who belong to eating clubs and I got to see the inside of eating clubs. And then after you leave that world and you try to transition to New York into a kind of ruling class society, for first generation college students of Ivy League schools, they don't have that same experience as somebody who might be third generation or fourth generation legacy. And I think right now in the climate of college corruption scandals, I was really quite taken because I thought I was pretty cynical after I'd done all the research. And then I realized, no, I was not cynical enough (laughs) because there's so much more graft that's going on right now in the transition and in the aspiration and the striving to get better jobs, better positions for yourself and for your children. Mm. And that's one of the things that I wanted to write about Mm. in my first book.
0: Uh, again, 313 1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Trey in Detroit. Trey. Hi. I can't help
2: but hear this story, and I'm looking forward to spending another week in Chelsea, which I just did last month. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I have friends who married Americans that I came up with who grew up in Japan, and in fact, their parents were born and grew up in Japan. When they first tried to get passports to come from Japan to the U.S., the Japanese Department of State said, "Oh, you're Korean. You have to go to the Korean Embassy to get your passport." Huh. <laughs> and they're third generation. Wow! Just imagine the reaction at the Korean Embassy.
0: <laughs> so these were these were um, they were repeatedly told.
2: No, we're not going to give it to you. You go to the Korean embassy, even though your parents were born here, and you were born here. In Japan? Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: Well, that's correct. Trey, that's correct, because most Koreans in Japan right now, unless they're naturalized Japanese citizens, which is really difficult to be, it's not like in the U.S. I mean, if you think it's hard to become a U.S. citizen,
0: yeah, go try to, to become be a, a Japanese citizen, citizen. is yeah.
1: it's really difficult. Right. So most Koreans in Japan today are South Korean passport holders. So in order to leave the island of Japan and to the nation of Japan to go elsewhere, you usually have to have a South Korean passport. Now, there is a huge group of people, even today, and you see much, much larger, who are affiliated with North Korea. And they could be fourth Korean, culturally Japanese people, and born in Japan. And yet, even today, they are affiliated with the North Korean government, and they have They don't have passports because North Korea and Japan do not have a diplomatic relationship. Wow. However, they have a little identity card, which occasionally, depending upon your status and invitation, you're allowed to visit North Korea and then return to Japan.
0: Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, and there's so much in that story that, again, just reflects the the, the kinds of conversations we're having right now in this country about – uh, who is allowed to be here, who is allowed to become a citizen and how we treat people, uh, who endeavor to become to become Americans. Uh, Trey, I really yeah. appreciate the call and the comments. Okay, let's go to Layla in Plymouth. Layla, what's on your mind?
3: Hi, uh, Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so when your guests mentioned um, uh, not sort of being accepted born in, um we are uh Iranian American and um actually Iranian Canadian living in Michigan okay. and um when we go back to Iran um there's two things that always happen. One is that when I'm told I have an accent, um, which is interesting because when I'm in Michigan I'm also told I have an accent. <laughs> um and then the other thing is when we go to Iran, we're told that we're not Iranian, especially when we go shopping. Um, because merchants will tend to charge more for people who are not local. Oh wow! And um, I didn't realize this at first. And when I was told that, oh, you're not Iranian, are you? I got really angry. And um, in Farsi, I, I said to them, of course, I'm Iranian. I was born here. And... He was really taken aback and said, "No, what I mean is that you don't live here. You're not it clearly, here now. Yeah. clearly, you have an accent. You don't, you don't live here." I said, "Well, that's true, but that doesn't make me any less Iranian." And um, I just wanted to share that with yeah. you yeah. that immigrants who leave their birth nations, the longer they stay away the less rooted, maybe. right? Oh. They face
0: this this challenge on both ends. Layla, that's a yes. really that's a really yeah. great story. Uh, uh, Minjin Lee, that's that's kind of the flip side of the story you're telling about uh, people struggling to be accepted in a new society. They can also then face those kind of barriers uh, to, in the places that they're from. I suppose.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think Layla's story is very universal. And it is the experience of so many people around the world who are not just immigrants, but also refugees. Because immigrants often have the choice, whereas refugees are often just displaced, and they don't always have a choice as to where they land. And when they do go back to their birthplace of origin, if they're fortunate enough, because sometimes you can't do that, very often they're rejected by the people who either feel left behind or resentful of the fact of the opportunities that you have. And there's a lot of really complex issues of race, class, and religion that also occur in what Layla's saying. And that's something that I think that we all can be more sensitive to. I think what's really interesting about all the crises of xenophobia that's occurring around the world is that this is a great opportunity for us to think more intersectionally about all these questions, not just in terms of, I don't like somebody I don't know, but (laughs) maybe I don't understand questions of religion and class and ethnicity, as well as race, because sometimes you can just dislike people who are exactly your race. And (laughs) that's a question that we don't really talk about, because the discussion nationally, very often politically, is a very binary of, oh, we're having a race culture war between blacks and whites. But there's a lot of other kinds of people. And within those communities, whether in white communities or in black communities, there's a lot of gradations and different groups that we can be more sensitive to. And it could be better because we can have a stronger team. In that sense, I'm optimistic.
0: Okay, Minjin Lee, author of Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit well, today. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Sure. And you can see Minjin Lee at this year's Midwest Literary Walk. She will appear at 1 p.m. on Saturday at Main Street Church in Chelsea. Up next, we're going to talk with another best-selling author who's featured at Saturday's Midwest Literary Walk. Luis Rodriguez is a former gang member and an acclaimed poet. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Any writer is proud when he is able to give his or her readers honest and vivid depictions of his or her subjects. But some work is so honest and so vivid that it also attracts the attention of censors. That's what happened to Luis Rodriguez, a former gang member whose writing is included among the nation's 100 most censored titles by the American Library Association. But Rodriguez has also had some more welcome awards as well. He's a best selling author and poet and was named the 2014 Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. He's going to be featured at this year's Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea, sharing his work and his stories with audiences on Saturday at 2.30 at the Chelsea Depot. Luis Rodriguez joins us now to talk more about his work. Welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yes.
0: So let's start with your story, uh, how you ended up uh, in gangs, how you then ended up being a, a poet uh, who, who uses that experience to power the work?
4: Well, you know, to me, being in gangs is um, is an issue of whether you have enough family, community resources. Uh, and when you're, I grew up in Watts and East LA, when you're in these communities that don't have those resources, most people in those communities don't join gangs but you're going to lose a few kids. You know what I'm saying?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Some people just feel empty enough or their families aren't strong enough. I mean, all these things we know. I was one of those kids. Um, I joined a gang because I, whatever I was going through, I felt a gang was going to be the answer to everything. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They were going to embrace me. They were going to understand me. They were going to give me what I couldn't get anywhere else. And, of course, it's a, to me it's, it's a big lie, but it's hard to go against that when there isn't too many other things going around you. Mm-hmm. So I joined a gang, and unfortunately, I gave myself over to this gang. I started doing heroin at a very young age. I started robbing. I started getting involved with crime. I was homeless in the streets of L.A., Um, and there wasn't too many things that was pulling me out. I have to mention a couple of things, though. One is uh, when I was homeless at 15 years old, I used to go to the downtown library, downtown L.A., And for some reason, those books really spoke to me. Hmm. I love reading books. Unlike my homies, unlike members of my family, (laughs) books were, man, amazing to me. And that was a big helping. The other thing is I had friends, uh, mentors. I had at least one mentor who wanted to help me out, even though I told him to drop dead I don't know how many times. (laughs) He never gave up on me. So I always tell people I was never really scared straight out of the gangs. I was scared straight. I left the gangs and heroin and everything by nineteen years old, and twenty years old. I was done.
0: And and you again, you use those experiences to power your work, which is what makes the work powerful. But it's also attracted this censorship. Uh, talk about the tension between those two things.
4: Yeah, I think when you when you get really honest, like you pointed out, uh, my honesty had to be that this life is hardcore. I couldn't just. Um, You know, and make it nice. Uh, I had to bring in some graphic details. Uh, Some of it was sexual, but the majority of it was violently graphic. It it didn't matter. A lot of censors don't want those kind of books in the hands of our kids. And honestly, I never wrote it for young people. I actually didn't write it for young adults. It's become a popular young adult book uh, because. Young people, as you know, are going through this stuff. Mm-hmm. They're living through this. The rise in suicides among young people, the rise in gangs. There's a mid, more than a million gang members in the U.S. alone. Um, the rise of fentanyl and, and other drugs. You, you, in other words, you're seeing a lot of empties in young people for whatever reasons. And for some reason, a book like mine attracts them. Uh, my hope is, although, they read the whole book so they can see that there is a way out of this. I want them to get that whole message. But in the meantime, it is pretty graphic. Mm.
0: Uh, And that balance in your work also uh, between the very graphic uh, themes of violence and loss and the themes of hope and understanding is also one of the things that makes it quite powerful. I mean, it's not just about these dark things that happen in your life. It's about the idea that you can move to better spaces.
4: I think that's important because, you know, when you're young, you, do, you don't see beyond that your age, um, you don't think about the future very much. You don't think about planning. You don't think about objectives and goals. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You're just thinking about getting through that age and, and therefore you can learn to be kind of hopeless, helpless, uh, powerless, and meaningless. You know, some people can go there. And I think it's important, if they could stretch out their life, they could see there's always the opportunity, there's always a door, there's always a way to go. If they could understand that, that they wouldn't paralyze themselves into the kind of life that doesn't go anywhere. I I want young people to know that. I work in prisons, by the way. I've been going in prisons for 40 years. Mm -hmm. I tell the same message to these prisoners, even if they've done a lot of time. Because many of them, especially those who have been around for a long time in prison, they begin to understand. Woulda waste what they done earlier, you know, and now they're stuck in prison, and very few of them are going to get out. So uh, it's important for and for me as a as an older person, you know, I'm I'm now a great grandfather, I'm a grandfather, great grandfather. <laughs> I still have something to give young people, but I don't want to put young people down. I don't want to say you're dumb for joining the gang. I I get it. I know why some people do it, it but I also want them to know. That there's got to be more in life. What is your purpose? What is your gifts? What can you bring out into the world that can be healthy and powerful and not just get stuck in, in the worst aspects of it?
0: So, so I also wonder what what you feel uh, when the American Library Association, for instance, says you know, that you're among the 100 most, most censored uh, authors. How, do, you, do you resent that in any way?
4: Well, in the beginning, I was confused by it because I, I, f- I figured out that most of the people that were sent the book hadn't even read it. I, I, I was on radio shows. Uh, when the book first came out, it really hit it. I was living in Chicago, so there was LA, Illinois and Texas and California and other, even in Michigan, there was uh, schools that didn't want my book, mm-hmm. and uh, people were riled up. And, but I found out that most people hadn't even read the book. And so I really suggested, look, I'd read the book. And if you don't want your kids reading my book, I'm fine with that, you know. Parents should help <laughs> decide what you know with their kids. But I told them, listen. But the kids are reading the book because something's going on in their lives, and I think it'd be good for parents and other adults to come into their lives, not by judging them, not by knocking them down, but really try to think about what what is missing and what could be done as a community to help young people. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of seeing that well, this is a problem with kids, they're all messed up. What's missing so that anybody thinks that a gang and drugs and suicide is the way to go. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay, Luis Rodriguez, poet and author of the book Always Running, is one of the featured authors at this year's Midwest Literary Walk. He will appear at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday at the Chelsea Depot. Luis Rodriguez, thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. Remember, tonight from 6 to 8 p.m. at Whiskey 6 in Gross Point. we are hosting a Smart Politics Happy Hour. I'm going to be joined by Nancy Derringer from Deadline Detroit and Sandra Swoboda from Great Lakes Now. And we're going to listen to you as you lead the conversation about the issues that matter most to you. And we're going to take your concerns to elected officials and policymakers when we go up to Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Policy Conference at the end of May. That is tonight at 6 at Whiskey 6 in Gross Point. I will see you there. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. I'll talk with you more tomorrow.